All right, so but let's get it started with a word of prayer. I'm excited for our study today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that is um, perfect and uh, living. It still is relevant for today, and we just pray, Father, that as we learn all these principles, that we would find encouragement and, and help in understanding it better. But ultimately, we know that we only know yourself because you have revealed it to us. And even to make things clear, uh, it really comes from you. Lord, we pray that you would bless our study. Um, even the questions that might come, that you give us uh, wisdom to handle them. In your precious son's name, amen. All right. Um, I wanted to start with just some reading here on... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um, for those that might be here for the first time or first time in a while, we're going through uh, this book, it's kind of, we're using it as a textbook, Journey into God's Word, Your Guide to Understanding and Applying the Bible. So, and really the goal is, um, how can we understand and study scripture better? in such a way that it, it not only makes sense to us, but we know how it relates to our lives and how does it apply to our lives. So that, that's really the goal of this uh, time that we've been spending. Uh, we have dealt with grammar, with different parts of the speech in, in books, and now we are banking on understanding the historical and cultural background of scriptures, all right? So we started this last week. Um, we talked about, you know, researching the author, researching the geographical location, what that thing took place, and um, and now we're moving on to uh, two more aspects, and then we'll kind of have some extended discussion on uh, what we started last week about the dangers of utilizing these resources that are outside the Bible to interpret the Bible. So, um, and then I'm going to show some of the resources that you can have access to. Yeah, just some helpful resources. They're not a scripture. Um, but they might provide some information. But we read them with care because we don't want to accept that or put it down on the same level of Scripture, all right? All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 14 uh, through 16. Um, and that says the Word of God. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is a spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Um, even as a way of, of personal testimony, I remember uh, going to church, and I was Catholic church when I was younger, and, and trying to understand the Bible and, and read it, and I think then I started attending the Christian church, and 
Uh, people say, oh, you have to pray before you read the Bible so God will help you to understand it. And even after, you know, doing that, I, I, I couldn't. It, it didn't make any sense to me. Um, but as, as soon as, you know, Christ opened my eyes to understand the gospel, to believe, then the scripture just, oh, okay, now I get it. I mean, there were still things that I didn't understand, <laughs> I, and there are things that I still don't understand. Um, but this is what we call the um, doctrine of illumination. It, you know, it was the Lord that gave us the ability to study this book and make sense of it and apply it to our, our lives. Um, you might have people uh, that might know a scripture, and they can tell you the back, cultural background, they can explain you the grammatical structures, but yet, uh, for them, it, it doesn't change them. And why is that? Well, because they don't have the Spirit of God. They don't have the mind of Christ implanted in them quite yet. So I think, uh, you know, just good reminder as we move through some of these principles here that ultimately, yes, we can use those resources. We can use commentaries and different things. Um, but ultimately, it is the Lord that opens our understanding and gives conviction and um, comforts us through his word. All right? Okay, so we are on our book. We are on page, um, chapter 5, and we're looking at page 52 where it says, um, other historical cultural elements... Um, and at the very end there, um, specifically talking about social customs. One of the most productive areas of background studies uh, relates to social customs. If you are studying Ephesians 5, 21, 6 through 9, for example, you will need to know something about the Greco-Roman world household. How do they operate? How do, does a husband act? How does a wife act? And so knowing how it operated then for the Greco-Roman world, it, it, you will see how this principle in the scripture was very different from that culture. So how would they, the, the believers at that time would take these rules? These rules were developed primarily to instru instruct the head of the household about how to deal with members of his family. So even from that standpoint, the Roman law did have instructions for households. For instance, Greco-Roman codes told husbands to make their wives submit, but they never listed love as a duty of the husband. Um, in Ephesians 5.25, Paul breaks the mode when he instructs husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And um, the, even the submission that is scripture talks about for women, and probably Michael's going to touch a little bit more of this later, um, it is a voluntary, joyful submission. It is a voluntary arranging of oneself under authority because they are God's chosen people to protect and to lead and to guide. And so, from that standpoint, it was very different than the world. The world says, you submit. Well, God says, you submit, 
the man doesn't enforce that. The man doesn't push that. Um, his role is love your wives. You don't make your wife submit. That's not your role. That's God's role to convince and to um, act in their hearts. So Paul's exhortation then had for all members of the household to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ would have been more radical than you know, even this principle, realizing we, uh, we're all under authority and we all are in this place of submission and um, understanding. So different roles will have different practices. So this was just a quick... Um, did I have a picture on this? Yes, I did, but it's kind of like the Roman household there. Often in the scripture, social customs are loaded with religious significance. Note again, um, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan that we touched in last week? Jesus' original audience would have been shocked and insulted by the fact that Jesus had these two Jewish leaders doing nothing to help uh, the wounded traveler, right? While the Samaritan, they're, you know, arch enemies was the one that proves to be the man's neighbor and the story's hero, really. So we know this because in that culture, Jews despised Samaritans who were considered half-breeds. So background on that is um, that the Samaritan people was the northern kingdom of Israel that during the time that Assyria came and, and, and they took them, it was different than the captivity of Babylon. Babylon took the Jews as a group together, all to Babylon, and then they came together back to Judah. But for the northern kingdom, what Assyria did is they spread all these people all over from to different countries and then brought other people to live there in the land. So even if some of them returned from, from that uh, captivity, so to speak, uh, they were very intermixed. They had uh, intermarriage, uh, which was not allowed in the law. So that's why that animosity, because they thought, you are not a Jew. <laughs> you are not uh, 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 the people of God anymore because you lost that. That's why there was that animosity. So for Jesus to be talking, you know that guy that you hate? He is the one that is loving, that is caring, and you're not. So, in the parable, for instance, another one is the parable of the prodigal son. When we think nothing of the father uh, running of, to greet his returning son, but when we learn that elderly Jewish men were considered too much dignified to run, we begin to see that Jesus is telling us how God feels about and responds to sinners when they come home. It was not the practice for an elderly man to run off the street. Um, so if you've ever been um, in the far country spiritually, I like what, how he phrases this, uh, you will be glad to know that when you decide to return home, God stands ready even to ditch his dignity to embrace you. Um, obviously, God remains holy. But his love is showed through even that picture. It's demonstrated even through that picture. The book of Ruth. Also, there's a lot of social costumes there. There, They're not really from our time. 
Uh, it, it seems strange to us that a family member would um, marry their cousin or their relative to uh, revive the descendants uh, of, of a specific uh, person. So Ruth was married to Israelite to an Israelite, and um, they didn't have any children. So there was this social costume, and it was both a social costume in the ancient Near East as well as in Scripture, dictated by Scripture, that a relative would marry that woman, that widow, and their children would be considered her previous husband children. Um, but how do we how do we know that? Uh, so the Book of Ruth provides another example of this social and religious elements that in, interconnect in many passages. To understand this book, you need to know something about the role of what we call the kinsman redeemer. After Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, both lost their husbands, they met Boaz, who turns out to be their kinsman redeemer. As strange as this may sound to us, Boaz could legally preserve the family name and provide an heir for Naomi's two dead sons by marrying Ruth, which he does. Um, it is interesting that Ruth gives birth, birth to Obed, who later turns out to be the father of Jesse. And who is Jesse? The father of David. Um, so even the scripture itself will provide context to other books of scripture. Oh, where's this David guy? Who's this Jesse guy that we were hearing for the first time? Well, all the way back to Ruth there. Um, all right, there, and there's many more examples that I could um, try to uh, bring to you. Um, but all right, I'll, I'll reframe myself here. But <laughs> let's go then to the um, other element there. The next paragraph is economic political issues. So sometimes our, our passages that we're studying might bring some economic issues related to that period of time. So on his second missionary journey tour um, in Acts chapter 15 through 18, Paul plants a church in Philippi. So this is the first time Philippi was the very first um, European church uh, planted. It's kind of exciting um, going through that journey. So there, Paul and Silas met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination uh, by which she predicted the future. She continues to bother the missionary team until Paul finally commands the spirit to come out of her, while her enraged owners then drag Paul and Silas to the marketplace where the magistrates order them to be stripped and beaten and later imprisoned for causing trouble. Well, that woman, so all this happens because the demon-possessed slave girl has been earning a lot of money for their owners. So now that the demon is out, their source of income is compromised, and they're angry about it. When the spirit left the girl, the money left the owner's pockets, and they take their revenge on the missionaries. So you also need to pay attention to political issues that may surface in this passage. So even here, uh, still in Philippi, Acts chapter 16. How about we turn there? 16, Acts chapter 16, and we're looking at verse 36. 
36 through um, 40. It says, And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, um, so you remember that Paul was in prison, um, he was beaten up, uh, the Lord miraculously uh, delivered him and, and Silas from prison, and he has this interaction with um, this, um, the policemen. You know, they said now, verse 35, now when the day came, the chief magistrate sent the, the policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent, you, sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without a trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported that these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed from the city. But it, this in itself give us an insight of the political scenario in the Roman, you know, the Philippi's in Greece, but they were under the Roman dominion, and they followed the Roman law. You treat your citizens with dignity. You give them a fair trial. So by treating Paul and Silas, who were Roman citizens, in the way they did, that was not right. <laughs> they needed a fair trial. They just... Um, so, since it was, illegally, it was illegal to publicly beat and imprison, imprison a Roman citizen, especially without a trial, the Roman officials act quickly to apologize for their actions. So, Paul and Silas probably demand an escort out of town in order to make a public statement about their innocence for the benefit of the church in Philippi. It, it, it is, isn't that interesting? It's just, it's important. Um, People would always have that image, oh, this, this place was the place of the criminals. Wait a minute, no, they were not criminals. It was an unfair judgment and a fair imprisonment. So historical cultural context including, includes information about the author, so kind of a little bit of a review here, author, the audience, their background, their circumstances and relationship that the audience had with the person that is writing, as well as geographical, social, and religious or economic or political elements connected to the passage. So some people, I think this is interesting, some people think that studying all this is kind of boring. Oh, that's kind of boring. I, I just want to read the Bible. Well, it, it helps the Bible to come alive, to make sense to you. Uh, we are able to see that God was speaking to real people who are struggling with real life and that he continues to speak to us today. Um, before I go on to show some of these resources that you could utilize, I, there's some, our author here gives three dangers involved in studying cultural background. All right, so this is on page 54, dangers associated with studying background. 
And he says, uh, while the greatest danger is ignoring the historical context altogether, I don't care for it, I don't need to study it, there are also dangers associated uh, with studying it. And we started the discussion last week with um, the um, John Piper and this um, D.A. Carson, they were in this debate how relevant it is for us to study, to do background studies. And, and Piper was saying, it, it, you really don't need that. You know, if you could do anything, if you can spend 10 hours, don't spend 10 hours studying historical background. You spend studying, you know, the, the text that you are studying. And Jay Carson gives a pushback and say, well, um, you know, you're, you're acting out on extremes. You're giving extremes example. Oh, so it's everything or nothing. You, you study all that there needs to be study about background or you study nothing. And really, most of us don't operate in this way. We kind of are there in the middle. We study the text because that's <laughs> the most relevant thing. But to understand the text, we want to, to have all these studies. So we'll continue with this discussion here. What are some dangers involved in studying background information? Um, well, first one, he says, is um, inaccurate background information. You know, you, you got to know where you're getting that information from. Um, take Matthew 19, 23, and 24 as an example. So it was this Paul and Silas being. So um, the passage says, And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the aisle of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know if you ever heard this explanation, but some people have held that, explaining that, you know, Jesus didn't really mean a needle. It was this camel gate. It was an entry door to the city of Jerusalem that was really small for a camel, but he could squeeze it in there. Um, so um, there was this small gate in the wall of Jerusalem through which the cam a camel could squeeze if of its load was removed and the animal go down on its knees and is able to crawl through the gate. The problem with this explanation is that there is no evidence of this kind of this gate, all right? And I thought it was interesting because I just typed this on the internet and it was like, they even put a picture of a, <laughs> a gate there. But you, if you really look at a map, you won't see that gate there. It probably has a different name. Um, so Jesus is using the largest animal in Israel and one of the smallest openings to make a forceful statement about how hard it is for the rich and the powerful to enter the kingdom of God. And it's not about the riches. It's, that's not what is stopping them from necessarily. It is God opening that door for them to enter. It is impossible to be saved because, you know, then the, the disciples later ask, Lord, so then who can be saved? Well, it is impossible with man, but with God, everything is possible. So, this is just one example how inaccurate information can get passed down through generations of preachers and teachers. Just because background materials make a great sermon illustration does not mean it is accurate. Your information will only be as good as, as, as your resources, and not all resources are created equal. 
right? I think um, I do uh, remember uh, when I was in Israel, we had to read, oh man, so many articles, so many archaeology articles. And it, it was, there, there was this one well known for, for, a long, for the longest time, a study on Jericho, and uh, this lady saying, well, we can't really, um, we can't trust the Bible because the evidence of a burning that happened in the city of Jericho, it is from the 12th century. It was from the, the 13th century, so like the 200s. Um, and um, that, that can be true. That can, can be true because, you know, the Bible says that was after the exodus happened. That's when the, the, the city got destroyed. Um, and so she's, you know, just fixated on this because the date that they found to, to those events were more um, earlier than that. It was in the 1400s. I'm like, oh, so it is not the data that you found, it's the way that you're interpreting the data that you found that is contradicting the Bible. And really, that the Bible was clear, um, and if you kind of trace back comparing different books, you will realize that Exodus happened in 1400 BC. So the information that they found in Jericho was not... Uh, contradicting the Bible by no means. It was contradicting this lady's study that she, her name was Kathleen Kenyon, um, and you can probably Google her and we'll see her research. And it was all wrong. It was her interpretation, and archaeologist was passing on that information on and on and on. I was like, this is all wrong. Um, just state your findings and then let's interpret it. <laughs> so I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but just uh, being careful. Uh, where is this source? The, who is this person? Do they really trust in the inerrancy and the uh, accuracy of Scripture? Um, uh, another one I think you probably recognize is you probably heard some preachers, you know, maybe people that you knew, they're dear to you, and where it says that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So the word pa- power is denimas. It's dynamite. It is as powerful as dynamite. Well, that is an anachronism because dynamite wasn't invented <laughs> in Jesus' time. They didn't have no idea what dynamite was. In Paul's time, sorry. Um, but you see, it's just information that people read into it that is not there. And we're going to have a whole um, session on, on discussing what are the things that pre-understanding that we bring to interpreting the Bible, they're not really right. So um, be in tune for that class, I think will be interesting. Another danger associated with studying the historical context, cultural context is that of elevating the background of the text above the meaning of the text. So that was similar to the uh, camel um, that the, Jesus' point was, this is not hard. This is impossible, <laughs> humanly impossible. When studying the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, for example, in Luke 18, uh, you may be tempted to spend all of your time learning about the Pharisees and the tax collectors and how that all played out, those different social political groups, You'll certainly need to know something about these two groups and their role and their reputation in Jesus' day 
yet you don't want to let your fascination with the background information cause you to miss the point. God judges the proud and exalts the humble. Right? It's, a, it's specifically referring to that episode where the Pharisee is praying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that man. And then the tax collector is saying, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. So the point really is showing God's grace to, to the humble um, and how he opposes the proud, he judges the proud. All right, or take, for example, King Agrippa and Bernice in Acts 25. It is interesting to know that the family history of King Agrippa, I mean, I, I remember being in a class of um, New Testament background and just studying the Roman emperors or, and these different politicians and their story, and it was like, boy, this is so popular material. But sometimes you can get so entangled in these little things that you miss the point of the passage. Um, so he, he, he says here, but you're, you cannot afford to let that interest cause you to lose sight of Luke's message. Luke portrays Paul as fulfilling the Lord's statement recorded in Acts 9.15 that he would bear witness before Gentiles and their kings. So when Paul is having this conversation with King Agrippa, that was a fulfillment of God's prophecy to Paul regarding that he would witness before kings. Colorful characters like Agrippa or Bernice are not meant to overshadow the triumphant gospel of Jesus Christ. So keep in mind as you study historical cultural context, there is a difference between the context of a passage and the meaning of a passage. Um, I have been, I've listened to sermons that I felt like, oh boy, I know a lot about the passage, about the context, but I really don't know how that relates to my life. <laughs> and, and, and I think it, it really comes from this, that so much emphasis is put on the background of the text, even comparing with other texts, that you really miss the main point of the passage. So we study background not to lose ourselves in a maze of historical trivia, but to grasp the meaning of the passage more clearly. All right? Then lastly, he gives one last danger here. We caution you not to let yourself slowly evolve in, into nothing more than a walking database of ancient facts. Um, and, and what he's getting at here is becoming all head knowledge. You know, this is all head knowledge. Don't lose your interpretive heart in your quest for information and deepen your understanding of the text. Keep your study of the background of the Bible in proper perspective. We study historical cultural context not as an end of its, in and of itself, but as a tool to help us to grasp and apply the meaning of the biblical text. But in spite of these three dangers, the greatest danger by far is assuming that we do not need to know the background information to understand the Bible. Right, so we need to keep the balance. It is important. It is not everything. Um, you cannot begin the interpretive journey apart from step one, grasping the text in its own town. And then um, you cannot grasp the text without knowing the historical cultural context. We turn now our attention to some of the, these resources. What are some of these tools then that we can use? 
to uh, understand. So as we have explained before, uh, grasping the historical context of the entire book means that finding about the author, the audience, and the background of the author. Uh, when did he write? What was the nature of the ministry of, of the writer, of the apostle or the prophet? Who was the biblical audience? What are their circumstances? And what was their relationship with God? What kind of relationship did they have with each other? And what is happening at the time of the book was written? So these questions, it will, we, we answer through some of these materials. So one of them is Bible handbooks. And I have an example here. Uh, one of them is uh, MacArthur Bible handbook. Uh, this one, it's called Bible Maps and Charts, but it's pretty much a handbook where they give you a little summary of the books of the Bible. Um, and they, they normally include a brief the introduction to each book of the scripture. Um, and even a study Bible, you will have that kind of introduction in the beginning, explaining, giving you kind of a bird's eye view of the book and who is the author, who is, when was written. Um, so artic and then they would have articles on subjects of interest are, um, you know, all throughout the, the, that material. You probably want to go beyond what is provided by a Bible handbook, but they offer a good place to begin getting acquitted, acquainted with the historical context of the book. Uh, so, for example, he, the author gives an example here from the book of James. So he's studying the book of James. The ladies are going through James right now. Um, and you decide to consult, consult a Bible handbook. What kind of information would you find on a handbook? The introduction to James may include a concise dis discussion of the authorship of the book, the date of the writing, the recipients, and the main themes. As you can tell from the example that I'm going to read here, the commentary on the text is usually brief. So it's not like a commentary that will spend a long time explaining each verse. So it's a more broad, broad stroke explanation. So here's an explanation from James 1, 5 through 8. Um, it's talking about, it, do you, are you going through trials? Pray to God for wisdom. That, it is, uh, it's that text there. He says, um, so here's what um, this Baker Illustrated Bible Handbook, and he says, Wisdom, if we need wisdom, perhaps to handle various trials, we should ask God, trusting in his kind and generous character, and he will give us wisdom. If we doubt, however, we can be compared to a storm-tossed wave of the sea, verse 6, such an, an unstable, unstable, double-minded, literally in the original is double-souled, uh, person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Um, the key to godly wisdom has always been a healthy fear or trust in the Lord. So... See, just brief, it doesn't really explain all, it doesn't answer all your questions. It's very much like even a, a study Bible. I don't know if you had that situation where, oh, I really want an answer for this one verse, and they have a lot of things on the verse before and a lot of things on the verse after, but they don't have anything on the verse that you want. <laughs> so it's a bit frustrating when you... <laughs> Uh, using some of this material, but they are helpful to give you kind of the general view of things. Old Testament and New Testament introductions and surveys. 
These resources supply detailed background information on each book of the Bible as well as an overview of the book content. Sometimes you would find an outline of the book, you know, just the major divisions in a certain book. And they usually discuss authorship, date, recipients, uh, situation, purpose, and more. Generally speaking, introductions offer a more technical discussion of the background and the surveys they will be more uh, broad and, I think, easy to read. So I have one, um, I have actually three surveys here, one of the New Testament, one of the Old Testament, another of the Old Testament. Uh, this one, I would say it is a little bit more technical, um, and I didn't bring an introduction, but an introduction, they tend to be a little bit thicker, and they'll be discussing archaeology, they'll be discussing, you know, evidence for the author and date and the different views of people. Um, so it really doesn't get to the book, the purpose of the book, as much as a survey would. Um, and so I, I would say this one's very conservative. I, I appreciate some of his views. And uh, these ones I read with a little bit of care, <laughs> just because sometimes the way they phrase things, I'm like, I don't know if I agree with you. Um, so, you'll also notice as you look for the uh, following, a list of in introductions and surveys. In your book, I think he listed a few there as examples. So, if you're urging, like Dave Warwick there, for buying books, you can... <laughs> Pat is just like waving her head, like, I don't want to... <laughs> no more books, no more books. <laughs> All right, commentaries. In most cases, a good commentary will be your first bet for the most up-to-date, detailed information about historical cultural context of the book that contains your passage. For example, in Gordon's fee, 462-page um, commentary on Philippians on, in the New International Commentary of the New Testament series, he devotes more than 50 pages to introductory matters. Uh, and so if you're just trying to get information on the book, normally commentaries would have a whole section in the beginning uh, giving that background information. Um, so he discusses ancient letter, uh, the ancient letter writing, the city of Philippi and its people, and the situation of the church, the situation of Paul, the argument and, and thought flow of the letter, and the theological themes of the letter. He also provides a detailed outline of the book. So by the time you finish the entire discussion, you will have a good sense of the historical cultural context even before you get to read the specific verses. Right? So because commentaries are always written from a particular point of view, since they're, um, they differ in quality and in scope, it is always a good idea to consult more than one commentary. And I, I do that for some sermons. I use uh, two, at least two or three, sometimes I even use five or six when it's, a, you know, Samuel does have me researching things. I might not use all of that that I, I studied, but um, it, it's just helpful to, to have that. Um, so one good thing, uh, just here, here's a, a key. Well, Ronaldo, I don't know, should I buy this commentary or not? Is this reliable? It's, um, you know, this one I think I got from the library. I haven't read it <laughs> on Romans, but I like this teaching the text commentary series because they do, 
well, they have pictures, and I like pictures. <laughs> so, and um, they, they, you know, kind of put summaries of key themes in the book and um, explain certain cultural things. In um, so, I would say that this commentary is more of a background commentary than uh, it, what we call an exegetical commentary, which really focus on the Greek or the Hebrew and trying to explain the, the, those uh, passages. There is, so here's a tip for you, all right? You're looking to buy a commentary to study, help you with study James or uh, Colossians. Um, you go to basscommentaries.com. So basscommentaries.com. And what, what it does is it, it gives you a, Okay, this commentary here is egalitarian. This commentary here is complementarian. This commentary here is Catholic. This commentary is evangelical. This commentary is reformed. Um, so it is really helpful before you make a purchase <laughs> that you kind of see, okay, well, what am I buying here? I heard it was good. And then they kind of um, grade the different uh, commentaries. This, this is the best one. This is helpful, but not the greatest. Uh, this one is more devotional. This one is more technical. So it will guide you even on that um, selection, right? Um, and I know that many of you have commentaries. <laughs> so then how can we get to get some historical context on a passage itself? Because we, we had more on the book as a whole that you were studying um, or the, 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 time, the time frame so how do we get some context for things specific in a book? Well, uh, one of my favorites is the atlases. So we got two here. I have others at home, but these are the last thing I've worked in the library. I got a lot of books for free or for very <laughs> cheap price. Um, this is ESV Bible Atlas. Uh, so obviously an atlas, we will find maps or um, schematics of different things in the Bible. So, oh, I, w I really want to know what the uh, tabernacle looked like. Well, then you can just look in a Bible atlas. You find uh, the uh, different um, examples there. Uh, we're going to see here, I brought an example. This one, satellite Bible atlases, this was um, actually... From Masters, uh, the professor that wrote it, uh, and he ended up denying the faith later, but uh, the, the book still stands helpful with the maps and just that you can follow along with scripture. So it's mostly maps. It doesn't have a whole lot of comments, as you can see. So there's some text in here, but mostly the maps and uh, explanations. So especially studying for Samuel, you guys want to get home and just, oh, okay, David was here, and then he was there, and he was over there, and he came back here. So these are some helpful uh, information. Now, let's say that you want to study the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, a weekly common known as Passion Week, right? You will need a map of Jerusalem during the New Testament time, uh, so that you can see the different where the different events uh, took place. Um, so it's it's really small, and it's small for me here too. So I'm really struggling to find 
But um, he says, do you see the Mount of Olives in the place uh, from where Jesus entered Jerusalem on the Palm Sunday? So the Mount of Olives is right here. So he comes here on Palm Sunday, enters um, through the temple there, um, and then th- th- he goes to the upper room, who is down here in the Essene quarter of the city of Jerusalem. So he comes from here, gets here, and celebrates um, the, um, the first, really, communion, but it was the Passover with his disciples. Um, and then from there, they go back to the Mount of Olives, where uh, Gethsemane right here is. There, you know, Jesus is with his disciples. So you see the Garden of Gethsemane there where Jesus prayed, and later he was arrested then if you want to know where the Jewish and Roman rulers tried Jesus, you can see many of the traditional locations. So there's the house of the high priest that is pretty close to the upper room, where the, the location of the upper room. Um, and then you can also find the traditional site outside the walls where Jesus was crucified. So this is the city of Jerusalem, and outside the city, remember Golgotha was the place where Jesus was crucified, so it's outside. It, it's kind of neat for you to you know, see that in an atlas where those events took place, and then you can see pictures of the place. It just makes Scripture so much more alive. There was, I think, one of my favorite memories was one evening, our professor decided to take us on, you know, really the path that Jesus took the last week. So we started there in the Mount of Olives, and then we went down through the Kindred Valley, because this is kind of a you know, mountainous region. you got to go down the valley and then up again to Jerusalem. Um, and um, the, the, the moment where Jesus prayed, the, the priestly prayer was in the Kidron Valley as he's looking at the, um, at the, the temple and has these grapevines engraved on the, on the temple walls. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches and apart from me you cannot. So it, it was pretty neat. And then going to the upper room and, and we went on a uh, Sabbath uh, kind of their Sabbath day, so the city is super quiet. You know, the Jews are all inside their homes, and, you know, I mean, obviously in the uh, Muslim, it wasn't as um, quiet. Um, but, yeah, so just some interesting things that you can find in Bible atlases. Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias. Um, for instance, if you want to know more about the Garden of Gethsemane, you can consult a Bible dictionary or encyclopedias. Um, these ones I, I am more careful with, even though I can find a lot of helpful information. I don't think I have an example here, um, but uh, IVP Bible dictionaries, ones that I, I like, um, but you know, read it with a grain of salt. But they would have articles on a specific things. Like Gethsemane, how do I uh, know more about Gethsemane? So here's, I'm going to read one entry from um, Anchor Bible Dictionary. It says, this Gethsemane was located in the Kindrum Valley from Jerusalem, between the Kidron Valley, uh, east of the Kindrum Valley from Jerusalem. On the slopes of the Mount of Olives, Jesus often went to Gethsemane in order to rest, 
pray and find fellowship with his disciples. And then he gives different passages here from Luke. After celebrating the Passover with his disciples for the last time, Jesus went to pray in the Gethsemane, where he was later betrayed by Judas Iscariot. The name Gethsemane derives from Hebrew and Aramaic words for oil press. So this is, this is interesting. This is Garden of Gethsemane. You can get there. And those trees date all the way back from the time of our Lord. So they probably were there when he was praying. And, um, but the name Gethsemane, he explains here, it means the, um, the place of the olive press, you know, where they would crush the olives to make the oil um, or, you know, olive paste, whatever it was. And that was the place where our Lord was squeezed in, right, to tested and tried. Uh, in Gethsemane, Jesus warned his disciples several times to watch and pray against entering into temptation. Jesus understood his own agonizing time of prayer as a time of temptation from completing the sacrificial work, will of God. He prayed three times for deliverance. Jesus won the spiritual battle and faithfully met his betrayer in the garden. So reminiscent of Gethsemane, when you read Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, um, it talks about Jesus offering up prayers with loud cries, right? It reflects upon the prayers and supplications that Jesus made with loud cries and tears. And as a result of his godly fear and obedience, Jesus was made perfect and became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So um, you will find a lot of helpful information as you uh, use these different resources. I talked about commentaries already, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. Background commentaries. Background commentaries are more like this that I talked about. They would have you know, pictures and illustrations and maps and different things. Um, and then there are studies, special studies, um, on, okay, I just want to know the culture. I just want to know the social uh, or the historical elements. I want to know other texts that were written during that time that the Bible was written, and then compare them with Scripture. So um, you will find here archaeological findings on the ancient Near East, and it's kind of fun when you find a text that sounds like the Bible, like, wow, it was written kind of the same time. Um, so or, you know, the geography of, of Paul's missionary journeys. Like this one, for me, it's kind of more of a picture book because you see all the places where Paul was in. Uh, this one is the life and biblical Israel. So the whole situation with Ruth, like you can read here about that social uh, aspect of the culture there. All right? Okay, so I went a little bit over time, but let's close with a word of prayer and then you're welcome to come here and glance through some of these books, all right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word that is uh, alive, as we already stated earlier, and uh, active and, and piercing through the hearts and helping us to discern our thoughts and our, the intentions of our hearts, Lord, and, and it lead, back to, to lead us back to you. I'm going to pray as we even look for different uh, background information in Scripture that you would protect us from getting so uh, entrenched in all these details that we lose sight 
of what you're trying to teach us and what you're trying to um, do in our lives through your word. I pray that you would bless um, the rest of our time of worship uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.